How many of you thought about just rolling over in your bed, staying in bed this morning? Yeah. I did too. This is the one day I'm essential personnel, and I have to come. It's the, the one thing Tom Brady and I have in common is we both work on Sundays. That's, that's about it. But, um, but it is good to be here this morning and to be here with you. I'm glad the snow gave us a little bit of break in the middle. Any of you experienced a miracle or an answer to prayer already this morning? I did. I did. I was down the bottom of my driveway with my snowblower when it stopped working. Uh, and for no apparent reason that I could figure it out. There are a lot of reasons I could think a snowblower would stop working. None of those had just occurred. And if you've ever seen my house, it's, it's a steep hill. So the bottom of my driveway, there is no way I am pulling this snowblower back up my driveway. And of course, there's snowbanks everywhere, so there is no place to put the snowblower, and none of my neighbors are up. They're still sleeping. Um, so I'm trying to figure out what to do, and I could not get the thing started, and I just tried everything I could for about 20 minutes and thought, well, I'm just going to have to leave it here and hope a snowplow doesn't hit it, um, and then just prayed, God, would you just please let the snowblower start so I can get it up the driveway and go? It pulled. It started. It's in my garage, and I thank God for that. So answer to prayer this morning, even before coming to church. So thank God that he cares about even things like snowblowers at the bottom of the driveway. Yes, well, that's not good news, Nick. Pray. <laughs> um, uh, one other thing, uh, last week, some of you were here, we had our fire alarm go off. That was exciting. Um, but uh, I want to apologize to you for that. We had a short in our panel that we believe we had fixed that went off at a very just inopportune time. But... Um, but hopefully that's fixed and apologize for that. But that's what that was last week. Nobody pulled the fire alarm. There was no fire. Uh, but we had a short in our panel last week. So that's what happened there. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Mark chapter 9 with me this morning. Mark chapter 9, we are starting in verse 42. Mark chapter 9, verse 42 this morning. If you have your Bible or your phone or your tablet or whatever way. You might be looking at your copy of God's Word. I encourage you to click to that or turn to that. Um, if you're keeping track, you'll note that last week we finished off at verse uh, 37, and this week I'm finishing off at verse 42. There is a small section there that, that I did skip over and didn't... Uh, uh, I'm not addressing on a Sunday morning message. It is an important section. Uh, I did actually take a few minutes this week to... Um, blog about that section. So if you want to read an interpretation of verses 38 to 41, uh, on, you can take a look at my blog at rickpicarello.com and it's called Who's on the Team? And that's kind of my interpretation or what I think God's Word says to us in verses uh, 38 to 41. Uh, but this morning I want to pick up in verse 42 for our message this morning on good fences make good Christians. This morning's message and topic is about sin and hell. There's no easy way to broach that topic and I thought you know what there's no way to kind of just 
couch that. There's no way to kind of ease into it. I thought we're just going to dive in this morning to Jesus's word uh, to us this morning. I know you got up on a snow day and you said, I hope they're talking about sin and hell this morning. And you came to church. But that's what Jesus talked about in this passage of scripture. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, and it may or may not be a popular subject, but it is in God's word. And it is real and it's important for us to talk about. So we're going to dive right into God's word this morning. Mark chapter 9 verse 42 says this. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Father, Lord, as we approach this text this morning and as we approach your word, we come with humble hearts. And Lord, we come as we always come to your word to sit under your word and ask you to speak to us. Father, we come to your text as always uh, with our own ideas often and with our own lenses. But Lord, we ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would allow us to see through your lens that your Holy Spirit would replace our ideas with your ideas, that your Holy Spirit would work in our heart and help us to see and understand what you have to say to us this morning. And especially, Lord, as we approach a topic as important and as serious as this, God, I ask that you would give us ears to hear what your word and what your spirit wants to say to us in these next few moments. Allow us to hear from you Search our hearts, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is, uh, just in reading it and just in hearing it, an extremely sobering text and yet an extremely important text. We're in that part of the book of Mark, as I mentioned last week, where Jesus has already, uh, in the first uh, number of chapters, revealed his identity. And in these last uh, half of the book of Mark, we're now talking about the identity of his disciples and what is asked and required of those that follow Jesus. And last week we talked about uh, the idea of humility and servanthood, and Jesus was very clear about that. And in this week's passage, he gets very clear about sin and hell. Let me give you three points that I think come from this passage about sin and hell, and we'll kind of break them down a little bit. And this is the first one. According to Jesus, sin and hell are real. That may not seem like a great revelation to you, but I think in our world and in our society and maybe even in some churches that that statement may be questioned. According to Jesus, sin and hell 
are real. Hell especially is a real place. It's not an abstract concept. It's not a curse word. It's not a place. It's not something made up to scare people. When Jesus talks about it, he talks about it as a very real place of uh, separation from God, eternal punishment, place you don't want to go. In this passage here, it is contrasted to life, which means life in heaven, life with God, eternal life, abundant life. Contrasted to that is the word hell. According to Jesus, sin and hell are real. I think there are many people in our world, you know them, maybe perhaps you're one of them, that don't believe uh, that maybe hell exists as a real place. But the reality is not believing something does not make it any less true or real. Just as believing a lie doesn't make it any more true or real. The question that must be answered is, is it true? Not, do I believe it? Not, do I like it? The question is, is it true? Is it true? Does it really exist? As example, millions of children may believe that a man flies around on December 24th in a red suit, in a sleigh pulled by magical reindeer delivering presents. The fact that millions of students, millions of kids may believe that doesn't necessarily make it true. Just believing something or disbelieving something does not make it true. The question we have to answer is, is it true? Too often truth these days when it comes to spirituality seems to be measured by no other standard than do I want it to be true and is it good for me? When we're talking about heaven and hell and eternity, the stakes are too high to depend on whether I want it to be true for me. The question is, is it true? And the answer to that question depends solely on the answer to the question of do I believe Jesus. Do I believe Jesus? The question of whether heaven is real and hell is real in a real place, in an actual place where, where the souls of men and women go, really depends on the question of do I believe Jesus? Because according to Jesus, hell is a real place. Once you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, God came to earth in the second person of the Trinity, that he died, rose again, and that I know I can trust him, if Jesus is that, if Jesus is God, then he cannot lie. And that means what he said about sin and hell in this passage must be true. And what Jesus said is that hell is real, that your sin will lead you there, and so that at all costs, rid yourself of sin. And that's what this passage is basically saying. It's interesting that the amount of time that Jesus talks about hell is not actually that much. In fact, if you did a concordant search of the word hell in the Gospels, you would come up with 12 times that the word hell comes up. The word hell is only on the lips of Jesus in all of the Gospels 12 times. Six of those occurrences either occur here in Mark chapter 9 in these verses or in the parallel passages in Matthew. Half of the occurrences happen in this particular instance. But this is one of those cases in Scripture where the amount of times it's mentioned does not correspond with its importance. We must pay attention to the intensity that Jesus gave to this topic. Walter Hooper 
was C.S. Lewis's personal secretary, C.S. Lewis, great theologian of the 20th century. And Walter Hooper was, was with C.S. Lewis one day and he laughed when he read an inscription on a grave and the inscription said this, here lies an atheist all dressed up with no place to go. <laughs> Lewis, however, did not completely share his laughter. He responded soberly with this, I'm sure he wishes now that were true. I'm sure he wishes now that were true, that he were all dressed up and that there was no place to go, that there was no actual hell, that there was no actual place of punishment apart from God. I'm sure he wishes now that that were true. See, we can laugh at a statement like that, but when we do, we must examine our hearts and ask, do we really believe it's true? Do we really believe there's a place that exists like that? Do we really believe that men and women apart from faith in Jesus Christ We'll spend eternity there. It's a sobering topic. It's not a topic to be taken lightly. Why is it that sometimes I think hell in church and hell in, in, um, in our society isn't maybe embraced or isn't really, not embraced, but believed even or even talked that much about? I think our lack, one reason is this, our lack of talking about the holiness of God makes hell somewhat unbelievable. Our lack of talking about the holiness of God makes hell somewhat unbelievable. Here's what I mean by that. That sometimes if we only talk about, well, God is loving and accepting and God is, is, is all uh, embracing and he loves everybody, and we never talk about the holiness of God, then what happens is we come to a passage like this and many people will say, well, I just can't believe in a God like that. Your friends would say that. They'd come to a passage like this and they'd say, I just can't believe there's a God that would send somebody to hell. I just can't believe there's an all-powerful God that would ever send somebody away from his presence and send somebody to hell. And I think part of the reason is because we fail to talk about the holiness of God. We think of God sometimes as just that doting grandparent you know, they call, you go over their house and, and they're like, oh, you can have some ice cream before dinner. Don't worry about the rules. And we think of God in that way. Oh, it's okay. You know, we, we, you just get into heaven. Don't worry about it. We don't want anyone going to hell. It's a lack of sometimes talking about the holiness of God, the justice of God that exists, that sometimes we come to a passage like this and we have a hard time thinking about a God that might condemn people to hell. But not talking about hell does damage to our talk about grace. Not talking about hell does damage to our talk about love and grace and salvation. If there's no hell, there's no need for grace. If there's no hell, there's no need for salvation. If there's no hell, there's no need for an atonement. And so it does in an injustice to all these topics. Let me give you an example. Salvation is so beautiful because you are saved from something. Here's an example. Suppose you're walking, imagine you're walking across the street on a beautiful sunny day. 
And you're crossing the street, and it's a beautiful sunny day, and you're on one of those streets, not like a Boston street where you can only see 10 feet down the street before there's a building or a corner, but like pretend you're out in Nebraska where Pastor Brian's from. You're on a Midwestern street that you can see for miles that nothing is coming. You look left, you look right, nothing's coming, and you set out to cross the street. And halfway across the street, I come along and I tackle you. And I take you to the ground, and you hit the sidewalk, and you break a couple ribs. And eventually, you get up, and you say, what was that for? And I said, I saved you. And you look down the street both ways, and you don't see anything. And you said, saved me from what? And I don't have an answer for you. I just sit there silently. I said, I saved you. Contrast that to another uh, situation where you're walking down the street. Instead, this time you got earbuds in your ears. You don't look either way. You start crossing the street, and I see you, and I see an 18 wheeler start to bear down right on you, and he's not slowing down. And I run out in front of that truck, and I grab you, and I push you down, and we fall to the sidewalk, and you break a couple ribs, and you stand up in just in time to see the truck fly by. And you look up and we embrace and you say, thank you, you saved me. What's the difference in those two situations? One situation probably ends in a lawsuit where you're suing me or your insurance company is suing me for breaking your ribs. The other situation ends in a party of gratitude and thankfulness. What's the difference? The difference is in the second situation, you know what you were saved from. In the second situation, the reality of what you were saved from becomes apparent and salvation was necessary. When we fail to talk about hell, then salvation is unnecessary. Saved from what? Why would I need salvation? See, when we fail to talk about sin and when we fail to talk about hell, then salvation itself loses some of its meaning, loses some of its beauty, loses some of what God has intended it to be. Same thing with mercy. Imagine you're, you're uh, let me give you another example. You're, you're leaving your house and you're going to a job interview and you're driving and you gave yourself plenty of time as you left the house and you get in your car and you're driving down the road and you are obeying the speed limit and doing everything. You're just going to get where you need to go and all of a sudden you see the blue lights come on in your rearview mirror and you know that, you know, it's, it's not you so you're going to pull over to the side of the road, let him pass and track down whoever he's trying to track down in front of you and you pull over but instead of passing you, he pulls up right behind you and you're wondering what's going on. And the, uh, one long minute passes by as he comes to your car and asks for your license and registration. And you hand them over and he says, uh, you know, ma'am, I want you to know something. The speed limit on this road is 55. And I clocked you at 50. And I also want you to know that you've got your seatbelt on. Your inspection sticker is good on your car. Your registration is, is, is accurate. You, you look like a good driver. You got your hands at 2 and 10. You look like a model driver. And I'm going to let you go without a ticket. And so you go and you have a nice day. 
And at first you're relieved going, what is going on? But then you pull away and you go, well, that was strange. Why did he pull me over just to tell me that I was a good driver? I'm on my way trying to get someplace. Contrast that to the fact that you're a few minutes late for the job interview. Your foot gets a little heavy on the gas pedal. The blue lights go on. You pull over. He pulls in behind you. And he says, ma'am, I want you to know I clocked you at 58 and this is a 35 mile an hour zone. In fact, school's in session. It's a 20 mile an hour zone right now. Not only that, you don't have your seatbelt on. And so this is about a $500 ticket for you. And now that I'm looking at your registration, it's expired and your sticker on your windshield is old. And so you're looking at a ticket, you're looking at seven years of surcharges on your insurance, and you can't even drive your car away because the sticker's expired, and that's a moving violation, and they've got to tow it away. And he says, but I'll tell you what, you look like a, you look like a nice, nice woman, and you've got a job interview you said you've got to get to. I'll tell you what, I'm going to let you off with a warning. I'm just going to write you a warning. It won't go on your record. There won't be any surcharge. And if you promise me you'll get that inspection sticker taken care of in the next couple days, I'll let you drive away and, and, and we can just forget about this. And what's that feeling that rushes across you in that moment? What you have just experienced is mercy. What you have just experienced is what's the difference between the first situation and the second? The first, you didn't need any mercy. You were, you were driving by the law. You didn't need any mercy. In fact, it was strange. Why would you say, I need mercy? Yet the second situation, I realize I've broken the law. And I realize what I deserve is a big ticket, years of surcharges, not to be able to drive my car away. And yet I experienced mercy. When we fail to talk about topics like hell and judgment, Topics like mercy and grace and salvation lose their meaning. Why would I need mercy? Well, you need mercy because we are sinners and our sin condemns us, separates us from God. Our sins make us enemies of a holy God who cannot have sin in his presence. If I don't know that, then I don't think I need any mercy. If I don't know that, then I don't think I need any grace. If I don't believe that, then I don't need to be saved from anything. And so sometimes I believe it's our lack of being, having maybe the boldness, maybe taking the opportunity, maybe not talking about these things of, of hell and judgment. Maybe we're afraid to or whatever it might be, but our lack of talking about them can really water down and really take away meaning from the things that we want people to embrace. The mercy of God is so much more meaningful when I understand that I am a person in need of mercy. The salvation uh, through Jesus Christ is so much more rich and meaningful once I realize I am a person who needs saving. And I cannot do it myself. Miroslav Volf, he's a Christian theologian from Croatia. He's a professor down at Yale. And he says this, he puts it this way. He says, he thought that the idea of an angry God was barbaric, completely unworthy of a God of love. But then his country experienced a brutal war. 
People committed terrible atrocities against their neighbors and their countrymen. And this is what he says. He says, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage by doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because he is love. You think about it from that perspective, it changes things a little bit, doesn't it? Think about the evil that men and women are capable of. To think that a God would not be angry at that becomes more of a problem. Uh, when we want God just to embrace and forgive everything apart from the atonement and love and salvation. So the first point about hell and sin is that Jesus, according to Jesus, they are real. They are real. The second point is this. According to Jesus, you should avoid sin and hell at all costs. That's what this passage is really talking about. The, uh, the fact that hell is real, the fact that sin will lead a person there, that you should avoid it at all costs. Better for you to die, Jesus says in a sense, better for you to die a horrific, immediate, and definite physical death than to lead another person into hell. He says, it's better for you to tie, have a millstone, and the idea of a millstone is this giant a round stone. They would have been one on top of each other. The top one would have been pulled by a donkey. It was so heavy, a human couldn't pull it. And he said, better to have one of those tied around your neck and drown in the sea than you to lead even the smallest innocent, the smallest child who can't help themselves into sin. That's how serious sin in hell is. And then he says, and for yourself, watch out for yourself. It's better that you, in this passage, he uses a, a hyperbolic statements, and he says to cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, cut off your foot. In other words, enter heaven and life maimed than to enter hell with two feet and two eyes and two arms. It's not a literal statement that Jesus is making here. I know you probably recognize that already, but believe it or not, in church history, there have been people that have taken this statement literally. Um, it is not a literal. Jesus is using hyperbole here. He is saying, whatever it takes, get rid of it. And how, you know, one reason we know it's not a literal statement is because one, you would have another one, right? You pluck out one eye, you've got another one. 
that's still causing a problem. You cut off one hand, you've got another one. And, and two, because we know that Jesus knows the problem's not with the eye, not with the hand, not with the foot. The problem's with the heart. The problem is deeper than the hands. The problem is deeper than the eyes. The problem's in our mind and in our heart. And you know that. If you think about the places in your life that you wrestle with sin, if you think about the places in your life that you wrestle to live a holy life, uh, uh, you know, as God would have you, whatever the place is in your life that you might wrestle particularly with that, you know it's not your outer physical part. It's your inner thoughts and your inner being that really experiences that wrestling match. So Jesus is using hyperbole, but what he's saying is, no matter what the cost, no matter what it takes, rid yourself of it if you've got a sin in your life that's leading you down this road to hell. It's a heart issue. It's not a one-time falling into sin. Jesus is not talking about, you know, this idea of, uh, of, look, you fall in and you've lost your salvation and everything's gone. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about this idea that we have sins in our lives that if we don't repent of them and we allow them to foster and we harbor them in our lives, what they do is they create a habit and it creates a lifestyle. And before we know it, we have hard hearts, not listening to God and living for ourselves. It's like an addict that thinks he is in control of his addiction, but only too late finds out the addiction was controlling him. That's what sin is like. Well, I've got it. I'm in control and no one else knows about it. And we think, I could, I could stop any time if I wanted to, and it's not that big a deal. People are struggling with worse things. And we think we're in control. And only too late... Jesus is saying, before it's too late, repent, turn, change, before you find out that you're not in control anymore, before you find out that something else is controlling your life. Jesus is essentially saying, stop fooling around with sin and get rid of the things that cause you to sin at all costs. I don't know what that is in your life, but I know there are things in each of our lives Places that we need to set up to keep ourselves away from sins that may easily beset us, that we may easily fall into. What are the types of things you need to put up in your home, in your life, around you? It's not cutting off your hand, but maybe it's cutting off cable. I don't know. Maybe it's cutting off an app on your phone that's causing you to go down a bad road. Maybe it's cutting off... So a relationship, maybe it's cutting off having the computer in a place where nobody else sees it. Maybe, I don't know what it is, maybe it's cutting off a relationship or cutting off making a change in things in your life. The title of the message, Good Fences Make Good Christians, what are the fences you need to put up in your life? What are the fences or the guardrails that you've put up in your life? The, the good fences make good neighbors comes from, a, um, of course, a Robert Frost poem called Mending Wall. Uh, and uh, it's interesting, as I read the poem this week, uh, Frost never really says what good fences make good neighbors means. Uh, he, he leaves that, to, of course, to the reader to interpret that through the poem. But it seems to mean 
that having a boundary line that's clear is important to good relationships. In one part of the poem, uh, Frost is, you know, walking this wall with his neighbor, he on one side and his neighbor on the other. And of course, the wall makes sense when, you know, there's cows on one side and goats on the other and we don't want them to cross. But then they come to this part of the wall, Frost says, where, you know, I have, I have apple trees and he has pine trees and they're certainly not going to cross, so we don't have to fix the wall here. And the neighbor comes up with two stones and puts them on the wall and simply says, good fences make good neighbors. And maybe there's places in your life where you say, well, I don't need a wall here. You know, it's not that important, but I think good fences make good Christians. That if we're careful to stay away from the things that will lead us down a road of temptation and sin, that good fences make good Christian. What are the walls and the guardrails that you've put up or that you need to put up in your life to keep you from sin? You know, little things sometimes. You know, one of the things I, you know, I do in my house, uh, my, uh, and just little things uh, to, help, to help other people, to help people in my house. Like my son loves reading uh, all kinds of magazines, but Popular Science is one of his favorite magazines. I like popular science. We read that. And, but if you've ever seen some of the ads in the back of popular science, they're not eight-year-old boy appropriate or nine-year-old boy appropriate. Uh, so I go through, you know, popular science, and I'm ripping out a couple pages before I'm like, here you go. Here's your, here's your popular science magazine. Or National Geographic comes in, and I'm ripping out a couple pages before that gets passed on, and he's reading National Geographic. Good fences make good Christians. I... You know, renewing my cable. Renewing the cable subscription for the house. And for me, you know, one of the things was, hey, you, you know, you get a, well, we can give you a great discount on a package. You know, you get all this, you get all these, you know, movie channels, you get all these HBOs included and all of this. And, and you know, lower your price. And for me, for my house, for my decision, you know, for, for us, I said, you know what, I, I, give me it without the HBO and all the stations. They said, well, I can't do that at that price. And I said, well, I'll pay more, but I don't want that in my house. And that's just, that's my decision. That's our, you know, what fence that, that we're putting up in, in my house. You got to see what fences are your fences. Good fences make good Christians. Sometimes it's costly. Sometimes it's a sacrifice. But what is it? Sometimes it's something that just needs to go in your life and I, my prayer is that through this message and even now that the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you of what that is that might need to be cut off. According to Jesus, sin and hell are real. We should walk away, run away from them at all costs and avoid them at all costs. The third thing is this. According to Jesus, our lives can help others avoid sin and hell. The beginning of the passage is certainly a strong warning. You know, don't let even the youngest one, don't lead even the youngest one into sin. But the end of the passage, this kind of cryptic saying where it says everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. It's a bit of a cryptic saying, and it's a little difficult even to understand, and there are actually a few interpretations of it, but I think the strongest one is saying that 
look, we're all going to be tried, and uh, we're all, that's the salt and the fire at the beginning. But what it's saying is you're to be, you have this salt, this preservation nature that's supposed to be within you. And if you lose it, how are you made salty? You're supposed to bring your presence and the, the message of Jesus to the world around you. And if you lose that, how can you be made right again? How can you be made salty again? He's saying it's, it's this image of salt from the Dead Sea uh, that was mixed with gypsum. And when the salt was gone, what was left is this gypsum. And they say, well, how do you make it salty again? It's useless. It's pointless. And so he says, be at peace with one another. And it sounds like a strange statement until you remember that last week they were arguing about who the greatest was. He said, look, he's basically bringing a close to that argument and saying, stop arguing about, among yourselves about who the greatest is and start being salt in the world around you. Be at peace with one another and be the salt that the world around you needs. Essentially, you and I have a responsibility to help others avoid sin and hell. We are to help people avoid sin and hell in their lives. But if we're caught up in our own petty arguments, if we're caught up in our own sin, how are we going to help others find the way? According to Jesus, hell is a real place. And it is the sins of men and women that send them there. But there is another option. There's a way out. And that's through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the good news. That's what the word gospel means. Good news. But it's only good news if you understand what we're saved from. It's only good news if you understand why we need mercy. It's only good news if you understand that apart from faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, we're enemies of God, condemned by our sin to separation from him. Like C.S. Lewis says, at the end of life, everybody gets what they want. If you want God and his presence, time with him and, and eternity in heaven, that's what's granted. If you want yourself on the throne and don't want any part of God in your life, you get that. Everybody gets what they want. The good news is Jesus has done what we could not do. The good news is Jesus has provided a way out. The good news is no one needs to go to hell. Hell is a real place and real people are going there apart from faith in Jesus. And if you don't care about that enough to let it affect the way you live and your relationship with them, the question that needs to be asked is why not? Why not? I don't care if hell is a real place, but I don't care enough to change the way I'm living so that I can be a better example to others who don't know Jesus, or I don't care enough to change the way I talk, or I don't care enough to work it into a conversation. Why not? I think it's either because we don't believe it's a real place. Perhaps we don't believe people are really going there. Or maybe we just have to ask God to help us care more about the people around us. As we close this morning, I think there's two responses to a text and a message like this that we ought to consider. The first is obvious. What do you need to get rid of in your life? 
Where do you need to cleanse the sin out of your life? What measures do you need to take to rid yourself of sin? There's nothing in this life that is worth your eternity in heaven. There's nothing in this life that's worth going to hell for. The internet is not worth going to hell for. A computer, a television in your bedroom is not worth going to hell for. A Facebook account is not worth going to hell for. A cell phone is not worth going to hell for. The good feeling you get when that person at the office who's not your spouse compliments you is not worth going to hell for. Do any of these things send you to hell? No. I've got a Facebook account. It doesn't send you to hell. The idea is when these things lead us into a place of sin, and you know if that's where you are, you know if the private message conversations are inappropriate and you don't want to tell your spouse about them. You know if you're trying to connect with someone from your past that you have no business connecting with. You know when something crosses the line and starts to lead you down a road away from God. It's not the television, the cell phone, the, the whatever it else. It's not the object itself. It's not the hand, it's not the eye, it's not the foot. It's the heart. It's the mind. It's those things in our spirit that may need to be cleansed. What have you been too cute about in the past that you need to just completely cut out of your life now? Where have you been playing around the margins when it comes to sin? Where have you been putting a band-aid where amputation is necessary? Finally, the second response, have you been too casual in your life when it comes to hell and the reality of others going there apart from saving faith in Jesus? Now, what this does not mean is throwing truth bombs out there so you feel better saying, hey, I told them, now it's up to them. Right? Because sometimes after a message, that is what a person can walk away with. I know this person, they don't know Jesus, so I'm just going to quickly call them up and say, you know what, you need to know Jesus or you're going to hell and, and, and are you going to accept Jesus? That doesn't help them. When you do that, what that does, what you're, the reason we do that is to get the guilt or the monkey off our back at times. It's true that a person apart from saving faith is Jesus is going to hell. But what you're doing is not for them. You're more concerned about your own guilt than you are their salvation. Because if you were really concerned about their salvation, you would endeavor to communicate truth in a way that it will be heard. In a way that it will be listened to. It's like the difference between a teacher and a great teacher. You know what makes a great teacher? It's very simple. What makes a great teacher is when students learn. It's as simple as that. If students are learning, you are a great teacher. What makes a bad teacher is someone who just covers the material and doesn't care if students learn or not. That's the difference. And sometimes sharing Jesus with people, we just want to cover the material. Jesus saves, you need to believe in him. If you don't, you're going to hell and that's it and I'm done and then we move on to the next person. But if I'm going to be a great teacher, if I'm really going to care about someone, I need to explain it in a way that they will hear, that they will understand, 
that they understand what I'm saying. I need to cover it with grace and love and take my time with that person. The teacher is not paid or should not be paid to cover the material. The teacher should be paid to teach students. The Christian is not called to throw out the gospel. The Christian is called to make disciples of Jesus. And making disciples takes time with people. What it does mean is taking the time to loving, carefully pray for them, love them, look for opportunities to serve them, and as God opens the door, to use your words to share the truth of Jesus with them. To care for them so much that I will pray every day for an opportunity to share the gospel with them and look for that opportunity. But I will love them so much that I will not throw it out in a way that they're gonna put up a wall and not hear it. I will love them enough to bring the gospel into their world. It's a lot like a missionary. A missionary goes to a foreign nation and doesn't speak their language and just throws out the gospel in English and they have no idea what they're saying but the missionary comes home and said, I told them they didn't respond. No, we expect our missionaries to go and speak the language of the people they're talking to. To love them enough to learn their language and to share Jesus with them. And it's the same with you and I. Yes, we need to care that real people are heading to a real eternity in hell apart from saving faith in Jesus. But the way we care is by lovingly sharing the truth of Jesus Christ with them. I told you at the beginning that there's only 12 places in the gospel that Jesus uses the word hell. What's really interesting is the only time he uses it is to correct and warn followers and religious leaders. He never uses it as a fear tactic against those who don't believe. He uses it to warn those who are already proclaiming to be believers. We need to share the truth with people, but we need to do it in a way that it's the kindness of God that leads them to repentance. And yes, that means sharing the truth, that you need God's mercy, that you need God's salvation, but it's doing it in a way that shows respect and dignity and love for the person. And so I'm going to ask our music team to return, and we're going to close out our service and our response and our call is this, these two things. And I pray that the Holy Spirit is already working on your heart, but maybe you're here and there is something in your life that you've been putting a Band-Aid on that needs to be amputated. There's something in your life, your spiritual life, where you have allowed sin to hang around. You've given it a place to harbor in your life, and it just needs to be cut out. And perhaps you're sitting here, and just as I say that, you are saying, I've tried. I have tried again and again and again and again, and it hasn't happened. I'm asking you this morning to try not in your own strength, but to ask the Holy Spirit to come into your life and to give you the strength today to rid yourself of that. And then when you get up tomorrow, to ask the Holy Spirit once again to fill you with his strength and his power to give you the strength tomorrow to rid yourself of that. And then we get up the next day to ask the Holy Spirit that day to give you the strength for that day to rid yourself of that. Because it is not in your own strength that you will do it. It is only through the Spirit of God and His filling you that you'll be able to set, be set free from these things in your life and experience God's grace and mercy. Or maybe 
Maybe you're just here and you say, you know what? There's this person in my life and I love them. And they're such a good friend. And, and we hang out and, we, and I love them so much. But I've always been afraid to talk with them about their need for Jesus. And my prayer for you this morning is that we would understand the burden. That according to Jesus, hell is a real place. And real people are going there apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons we're here is to help people to know that no one needs to go to hell. That they put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ and they can be saved. And if that's you this morning, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that maybe this is the morning you want to do that and recognize that you can be saved that there is a hell that we need to be saved from and Jesus has made a way for it. And if you will put your faith and your trust in him, that he will save you, forgive you. He will forgive you, save you from your sins and he will become the Lord of your life and lead you and guide you to live that life that he's called you to live. Would you stand? I'm gonna pray. And regardless of what are the, which of those calls you may be feeling or experiencing today. I want to open these altars for a few minutes and just to allow you some time to spend with the Lord and allow him to work in your life. Father, God, this is a sobering topic, Father, but it's a real, it's a real truth that we need to be engaged and we need to understand. It's not something to be joked about. It's not something to be taken lightly. God, we thank you for salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you did not leave us as enemies of God in our sin, but you created a door, a door through faith in Jesus that we might pass through death into life. And so God, we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts today. And those of us in here that have been dabbling with sin or allowing something to hang around in our lives, remind us this morning that the enemy is a liar and that he will lie to us about what we can handle in our lives and what will affect us and what won't affect us. Remind us that our heart is deceitful and our own hearts can deceive us. And let your spirit move and cleanse us this morning. Father, I pray that you would give us a burden for those who don't know you. And Lord, help us to do the hard work of loving them and getting to know them and winning an opportunity to share saving faith in Jesus with them. Lord, we come to you this morning. We ask for you to move and speak to us, Lord. Lord, we come. Let your spirit be here and move in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. It's our worship team plays. These altars are open for you to come and pray and seek the Lord in any one of these responses in your life.